Right. Welcome to the new podcast. We're going to be talking to Jim Rickards about some things today. The majority of the podcast is going to be contained in this segment. There are some things that we're going to be talking about that certain publishing platforms don't like you talking about. So we'll post the complete unedited version over on Rumble. Information is either going to be in a link in the video somewhere or down below. Thanks for being here. I have with me today my friend and colleague, Mr. Jim Rickards. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. For those of you new to the podcast, Jim Rickards is a best-selling author of numerous books. Um, he's well-known and highly respected expert in ge ge geopolitics, excuse me, economics, intelligence forecasting, and a number of other subjects. He holds a lot of degrees and professional accolades that I'm not going to uh, dive into. You can you can look all that stuff up. He's an amazing guy. He's one of the smartest guys I know. If you haven't read Jim's books, I encourage you to do so. In my opinion, they're required reading for anybody trying to understand what's happening in economics and politics today. His books include uh, The Industry Classic Currency Wars, Death of Money, Road to Ruin, Aftermath, The New Case for Gold, his latest book, uh, which we're going to touch on briefly today is the new Great Depression. Now, there's a lot of taboo subjects we're going to be talking about today. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you're going to find instructions below on uh, how to access the unedited version of this podcast. Um, it's kind of sad a little bit today that we even have to do that. But apparently anybody that, that uh, disagrees with the information put out by certain organizations such as the CDC and WHO is forbidden in some places nowadays. And humans who are interested in all the data pertaining to important issues now have to look on platforms not controlled by big tech. Lots to discuss, Jim. So let's dive in. You are, go ahead. You're going to say something about the, the censorship. I was just going to say it's kind of a, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, you know, bittersweet or whatever. That's the last Gold Chronicles podcast, of course, uh, you know, you, you'll be uh, doing other podcasts in the future, as will I, and so there'll be uh, uh, more times to um, kind of, you know, reunite and talk things through, which we've always enjoyed doing, but I don't know the exact number of years we've been doing Gold Chronicles for, I think, six years, maybe longer, but uh, it's one of the longer-running podcasts out there. It's had a great following, uh, and it's been, uh, I like that we actually used some of the transcripts uh, for part of uh, the my book, the new case for gold. So we, we got a sort of permanent archive out of it. But uh, yeah, it's a great, it's been a great series. But you know, always time to move on, uh, go on to the next adventure, so to speak. Exactly. So diving into some uh, some of the the subjects here, you are one of the most even keeled guys I know. I've rarely seen anything make you the least bit uncomfortable, and I understand you've been through some very challenging times um, in your life. If there was one thing from a systemic perspective that did make you uncomfortable in regards to wealth protection and financial survival or financial health moving forward, what is it? Uh, it's not so much um, things that happened, it's things that haven't happened. And what I mean by that is going back to, I mean, I, I don't know, it's almost like I'm a magnet for trouble. I was at my desk in October 19, 1987, when the stock market fell 22% in one day. We didn't have uh, uh, quite uh, the, you know, the internet connections we had today, but we had, you know, we had tickers, we had, we had screens, and you could see it happening. Um, 
1994 tequila crisis, uh, 1998 uh, long-term capital, Russia collapse, of course, uh, the front row seat on that one, uh, the dot-com crash, 2008 financial crisis, and 2020 the pandemic, So, and other little you know, bumps uh, in the road along the way. And I guess what strikes me is that whenever, whenever one of these crises happens, and then it's over. You get through it. You know, it's a lot of money lost and money changes hands and things uh, get get churned around a little bit. But um, you get through it. Uh, and there's usually some kind of postmortem and everyone says, well, what went wrong? And the answers are almost always the same, which is, you know, too much leverage, non-transparency, um, you know, end runs around. You know, I'm not I'm not pro-regulation, but I would say in a complex world of capital markets, you can't have zero regulation unless you just want to have, you know, a license to be to be a pirate, in other words. But um, so someplace for regulation as long as it's kind of intelligent, well thought out. Every, but everyone immediately identifies the problem. Here's the problem. We need to fix it. And they never do. I mean, I had a, I did a lot of interviews recently. There was this Archegos, this family office run by Bill Huang, called a family office, which technically it is, but, you know, it, it, it works, it operates like a hedge fund. He had a hedge fund background. Not every family office looks like a hedge fund, but this one does because his background was in hedge funds and he just ran his, just all that kind of family office means is that you eventually got, so you made so much money that you could redeem your outside investors and it was all your money, but right. it didn't mean that you ran it any differently. Stan Drunkenbiller does the same thing and so do others. Um, but uh, when it when it blew up and it's you know it cost uh, uh, looks like it's costing Credit Suisse somewhere between I don't know five and seven billion dollars in losses and Morgan Stanley and others took took losses as well not quite as large um, and, you know, people are getting fired here and there all pretty par for the course but everyone says well, what happened with Archegos well you know, he was using equity derivatives instead of equity and so he had excessive leverage and. Um, uh, yeah, he was 10% of some of these companies, but of course, if you do it in derivative form, you don't have to file the 13 Ds. There's right. no public disclosure. If you own the stock, you do. Right. If you own derivatives, you get the same economics. It's the same as owning the stock, but you don't have to file the reports. Um, although I've always felt that was a little bit gray, but I guess the legal advice was you didn't have to file them. So we need to fix that. You know, we need to say, if you have a large position in equity derivatives, you have to report it the same as in equities. They said the same thing in 1998. It was 22 years ago after long-term capital. We were one of the largest. Everyone knew that long-term capital was a, a huge uh, fixed income arbitrage shop, which we were. Legendary. Uh, but we had, we had $1.4 trillion dollars in derivatives positions, and a lot of those were equity positions. We were one of the biggest risk arbitrage firms around. So everyone said, um, and we, we stayed at 4.9%. We never went over 5%, partly for that reason, because we didn't want to be too aggressive. But uh, this guy, Bill Huang, was 10% in some of these stocks. So, um, but part of the response was, well, you know, we got to fix that. We got to say, if you have equities, you need to report them either way. It never happened. So I was half laughing and you know, I took it seriously, but people were calling me for interviews about Archegos saying, well, what's the answer here? And I said, well, same answer it was 22 years ago, but nothing happened then. And I don't think anything's going to happen now because Wall Street pretty much controls Washington. So here's the, the bigger point. You have problems. Some of them are quite serious. Archegos looks like we'll get through. Maybe you never know the, the ripple effects sometimes can take a year to play out. 
Long-term capital came within hours of shutting down every stock exchange in the world. That's not an overstatement. We saw it happening and we got the money, the $4 billion in that and it didn't happen, but it was extremely, uh, as uh, Lord Wellington said, a, a close run thing. Um, same thing in 2008, you know, Morgan Stanley was days away from collapse and then the Fed kind of came in and truncated it. But how many times are we gonna go through this before we don't have a soft landing, before we don't sure. truncate the damage, before it does spin out of control? And then everyone will look back and say, we should have done this. And the answer is yeah, but we told you that for 30 years and you never did. Yeah, so so what you're telling me is the thing that make, that would potentially make you uncomfortable is that, that moment when we don't have a soft landing. Well, it makes me uncomfortable now that we haven't fixed any of these problems. I, I, I know just look, independent of capital markets, if you just study statistics and complex dynamic systems um, and you see these recurring patterns and you get a certain degree of distribution, it's just a matter of time before one of them is, you know, the tsunami that knocks out the nuclear power plant. Um, right. It's, uh, I don't know what people are waiting for. Of course, the answer is, instead of waiting around for that to happen, for there to be a far worse result and go, oh my goodness, now what do I do? You should anticipate it. It doesn't mean you curl up in a ball and, you know, crawl under your bed or hide in a closet or, you know, you're scared to death. It, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that, you know, you go out and face the world, you're an investor, you have diversification and, and, and asset allocations, but you have assets that are going to be robust to the worst things that can happen. Not 100%, but, you know, a slice of gold, I've always recommended 10%, some cash just to kind of weather the storm. In fact, in fact cash can be extremely valuable after the crisis. You can be the person who goes in to the wreckage and picks up some good bargains um, and, uh, you know, and then the uh, treasury notes and this room for stocks, I'm not saying don't ever buy a share of stock, but, you know, people sometimes say to me, well, Jim, you have, you know, um, 10% or whatever, you know, percentage uh, of your, your net worth in uh, your investable assets in gold. How do you sleep at night? And I say, well, you're 90% in equities. How do you sleep at night? Right. That's always been a way I've thought about, you know, it's like, are you, what are you joking me right now? Right. Exactly. So, um, all of the things that have happened in regards to the virus, um, and we're going to dive a little deeper into that here in a minute and the economic effects that are moving forward. Would you say that that probably increases the risk of systemic effects? Now you've got virus issues, you've got the lockdown issues, which have caused economic issues. Um, and now you've got one of the things that I'm particularly concerned about is, is that what seems to be an, an endless number of new spending packages. Um, I mean, all this kind of stuff. What's your view on that? Well, this is uh, the big theme of my book, The New Great Depression, because I, I made the point, well, a couple of different points. One is in the 1930s, we had the Great Depression. It's conventionally dated from 1929 to 1940, but you know, just call it the 1930s, we had a Great Depression, but there was no pandemic. In 1918, 1919, and kind of lingering into 1920 a little bit, uh, we had the worst pandemic in history, recorded history in terms of fatalities, the Spanish flu, which killed uh, best estimates now are 100 million people. Um, but there was no severe economic recession. Globally. There was, there, globally uh, that's right, globally. Uh, yeah. uh, there, was, there was a little bit of a recession in 1920. We, we got through it. It didn't last that long. Um, the, by the way, the government policy in response to the 1920 
uh, actually depression was to do nothing. And it was over in, in a year. <laughs> it was only, it was only when the government decides to intervene that they can make it last, you know, for a decade. But, um, uh, so not, not a major economic catastrophe at all as we got through it. And then, um, the 1920s, one of the great periods of prosperity in American history, you know, the roaring twenties. So, but, so we had our depression, no severe economic recession, sorry, we had our pandemic with no severe economic consequences. And we had a, a, a severe depression with no pandemic. What happens when you have them together? And that's exactly what we have now. Uh, and uh, so a couple of observations. Number one, um, you know, I call my book, The New Great Depression. And uh, I wrote most of it less in the spring of 2020, but it was updated through October. It came out in January. It was very fresh when it came out. And it's still fresh. There's still a lot of, a lot of uh, ideas there that are playing and getting more validation, more verification as time goes on. Um, and uh, people say, well, Jim, okay, but how can you call it a depression? You know, we had a technical recession in the first half of 2020, stock market went down over 30%, but it came back and it didn't just come back. It's on to new all-time highs. We're seeing, you know, new all-time highs as we speak. How can you call that a depression? And my answer is uh, two, twofold. Number one, you have to know what the definition of a depression is. It doesn't mean continuous decline in GDP. It, it can mean that that's a technical recession and you can have recessions in a depression, and we already have. But um, what it really means is depressed growth, that you can have growth in a depression, but it's below trend, it's below potential, and you're creating a wedge. So here, here's the potential growth, and here's the actual growth, and that wedge between the two is lost wealth. If you could be growing here and you're growing down here, you still have growth. But if your growth is you know one and a half, two percent and you're capable of growing 3 4%, that's an enormous wedge and it, it compounds over time, leaving trillions of dollars of wealth on the table. Um, that's a depression. That's, that's, is the mode we're in right now. Uh, you know, the Atlanta fed um, now cast, they call it uh, for the first quarter showing uh, right now about 6% growth. Um, we won't know till the end of April, the, the first quarter GDP numbers will come out the last week of April. Uh, that sounds great. Hey, 6%, man, we haven't seen that in a long time. Well, but that's a year over year comparison. It, it's, it's year over year um, annualized. So you're looking at uh, one of the worst quarters in US history, which is the first quarter of uh, 2020. The second quarter was far worse. But the first quarter, remember, was down about 5%. So gee, that, that's all you can do. You, you were down 5% and all you've been able to do is grow 6% better than being down 5%. I mean, that's not even getting us back to 2019 levels of output. So I would say that's very weak growth under the circumstances. And it looks like it's getting weaker going forward. Um, initial claims for unemployment are up, labor force participation is down, real wages are flat. It's just, uh, you know, interest rates are zero. There's no more room for the Fed to stimulate, quote unquote, because uh, you can't cut rates that they're not gonna go negative and you're at zero. You can't cut rates anymore and QE doesn't work. So, uh, and then you kind of over to the fiscal stimulus. There they have the opposite problem, uh, which is you're at a point where the debt, you know, my key metric is debt to GDP. What's the US national debt divided by US GDP? Uh, that's a ratio. And uh, it's now uh, close to 
uh, 130%, probably a little higher than that at this point. That puts us in the same league with uh, Lebanon, Greece, and Italy. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's your, I call it your lunch table of four, you know, Lebanon, Greece, yeah. Italy, and the United States. Um, but there's good evidence that, uh, well, monetary stimulus doesn't work because of loss. You can print all the money you want, but if people don't spend right. it. This is, this is what I was just thinking just while you were talking about that. So that, that in that like two minute clip, you dumped a tremendous amount of economic data, right? But the, the net result is depression. Which, by the right, way, because, because mon- thank you. Mon- monetary on. monetary policy does not stimulate because there's no velocity or velocity is sinking like a stone. Right. Velocity right. is psychological. The Fed can change the money supply. The Fed can stick the landing on base money M zero, but they can't change velocity because that's psychological. Fiscal stimulus doesn't work because okay. the debt so, ratio is already too high. So super important point then, right? Because Great Depression two or the new Great Depression, two things. How long does it last? How does it end? Or three things, I guess. How long does it last? How does it end? And what does velocity look like when it ends? Well, a couple of things. It, it can last indefinitely um, because you need to change the psychology. You need to change velocity. Um, but if you do that, you could open Pandora's box because if you actually, psychology is really hard to change in one direction. But once you do, it's just as hard to change back. Uh, but but if you do, then again, you're, you're, you're kind of stuck with it. So right now we're in a deflationary, disinflationary psychology. Nobody's running out buying appliances because they're worried the prices are going to be higher next month. Um, you know, I, I hear from people all the time, the price of gasoline is up. It is. You know, I, I put gas in my car. I know the price is up about a dollar a gallon. But the price of uh, clothing, the price of technology, the price of tuition, healthcare. All these really big things are going down. So yeah, you can pick uh, pick out a quart of milk or a gallon of gasoline, and maybe the price is higher. I understand, but um, CPI is or, or or other measures of consumer price inflation. There are a number of them are flat. Uh, you know, not not zero. <clears throat> pardon me, not zero, but about you know, about one and a half percent, which is uh, which is trivial. So um, so we're not, so we're not seeing that change in psychology. Now let's say you actually got there and how would you get there well you might just do it with fiscal policy you're not going to get growth but you might get inflation if if you spend more money than the economy can absorb where's the money going to go it can go a couple different places it can go into asset prices it can go into stocks and you know look at the stock market Uh, you could argue you could argue that we're 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 shoving money out the door which we are uh Mm -hmm. but people are not spending it that's in the data by the way this is right None of these things are hypothetical. It's, I, I'm actually taking this from hard data. Um, I saw a piece the other day that 76% of the government checks are either being saved or used to pay down debt, which is economically the same thing. When you pay down debt, that, that's not new consumption. That's right. just paying off the old consumption that the money was already spent. You're just trying to reduce your balance sheet. Right. Well, if 76, if 76 cents of every dollar is being saved and not spent. Where's the stimulus? Right. Um, That's but, actually causing the money supply to shrink as well. Correct. Uh, so so now, um, but let's say you keep going and say, okay, so Trump did two trillion in uh, March of uh, 2020, and then did another 900 billion, almost a trillion, in December 2020. Biden did 1.9 trillion in March, 2021, 
and they've already uh, uh, proposed a four trillion dollar so-called infrastructure bill, which is mostly not infrastructure. It's it's four trillion now. I thought yeah, it was. Well, it keeps going up, you know, but because <laughs> it's it's just a, it's just a Christmas tree. Walk over and hang it, hang any ornament you want on it. Uh, get your wish list out. But the point being, um, so add that up. So two trillion, call it one, three, two more, five, call infrastructure three if you want, eight trillion dollars. Now that's on top of baseline deficits. Just if there had been no COVID and no uh, spending packages. We had trillion dollar deficits for fiscal 20 and fiscal 21 anyway. So when you include those, you got $10 trillion of spending in an economy with GDP of about $23 trillion. So you're pumping 50% of GDP in the form of new government spending. Well, uh, what if that, and it probably does exceed the productive capacity of the United States. I'm, I'm very bullish on the United States, but you know, there are only so many factories, there are only so many uh, restaurants, only, half of them are closed anyway. Where's that money going to go? Well, it, it can only go one of several places. Um, asset bubbles, which we talked about, but then they burst. What does that do? Well, it takes down your economy. Or um, it, can, it can eventually uh, just kind of pile up in the banking system. That doesn't, that's more disinflationary than anything else. Or if it does pivot to spending, you're going to get a lot of inflation very fast. Now, right now, there's no inflation. There just isn't. But could that change very quickly? The answer is yes, with this with this kind of money. So you won't get real growth. I'm not talking about real growth, but I am talking about nominal growth, which is a fancy name for inflation. Right. So for, so for people who um, have not necessarily studied sort of how money works and understands principles of, of debasement of currency and understands principles of, of what happens over time with what I call dishonest money. Um, who benefits the most? When you have these gigantic $10 trillion of spending, who's, who's benefiting from this? Is it the common citizen or, or is it somebody else? Uh, it's almost always somebody else. A, a couple, there are a couple obvious beneficiaries. One, uh, if you're on Wall Street, yeah, everyone thinks that Wall Street, you know, takes positions in this and positions in that and make a lot of money. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, but that's not really what they do. They're intermediaries. They're just charging people. They're, they're toll collectors. Well, the more assets are racing into, the more money that's racing into assets and then eventually to race out of assets, they're sitting there collecting tolls the whole time. So I'd say Wall Street will do uh, extremely well. Um, people who do well are the people who see it coming. Yeah. Um, meaning, Right now, deflation, uh, but it's going to pivot to inflation. Hard to say when. Uh, I look for signs all the time. Uh, but, you know, gold's been hammered. Well, what a great time to buy gold. I mean, at 1730 an ounce, um, it'll be, it was only last August that it was 2070 an ounce, $2,070 now. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, 10 years ago, it was like six right. months. Um, so those kinds of levels are easily achievable. It can go with an inflationary I mean, we've seen gold prices go up. I understand they're down the last three months. I get it. I look at it every day. But uh, if you look at the bottom, the bottom of the last bear market was December 16, uh, 2015, and gold was $1,050 an ounce. Today, it's about, call it $1,750. It's around $1,730, give or take. Um, well, that's, that's a 70% increase in not quite, uh, in five and a half years, just a little over five years. That's that's with the drawdown. That's coming down from 2070 to 1750. 
it's still a 70% increase uh, over this five-year period, which is just the beginning. That's just that's just how bull, bull markets start. It's not how they end. They sure. end with, with hyperbolic price increases. Well, that's with all these headwinds, uh, you know, disinflation, deflation, uh, recession, um, arguably a new Great Depression, a pandemic. These are all headwinds for gold. These are not things that tend to boost gold. Well, and yet it's done well anyway. Well, imagine if if the inflation people worried about actually shows up. I mean, can you imagine what's going to happen to gold? It'll be $3,000 an ounce before you can blink. So my point being, why not buy some now to prepare for that? So the real beneficiaries of inflation are not the people who react to it when it's here. It's the people who see it coming and position in advance. Right. Totally agree. Totally agree. Okay. So um, a quick note before we move on, I want to, I want to dive in maybe a little bit into these topics individually very quickly and then move on to our sort of last area. But um, some of you are interested in sort of the writing process and about um, how books get published and like what goes on the, in the brain of a, of a very credible and, and um, well-known author like Jim. So our previous conversation, Jim and I had a real long talk about the publishing process, how it works, how he writes books. And, and I found it to be a, a, a great deal of wisdom on, on being a published author. So uh, in the future, there's going to be another podcast <laughs> segment published where, where we're talking just about that. But uh, back to the new Great Depression, a couple of precise things that I want to dive into here. One of the, the way you start the book in this I found to be really interesting. I'm, I'm going to read this little quote that you put in the first chapter is uh, ahead of the first chapter. It's going to be hard to go back to normal, especially now that we're constantly informed that we cannot go back to normal. That's Lionel Shriver. Right. I thought that was. Yeah. She's one of my favorite writers. She, uh, you know, uh, she's a, a novelist. So um, I'm in nonfiction. She's in fiction, uh, award-winning. Uh, some of her books were turned into, uh, very popular films, but she wrote, uh, so she has a number of good books, but she wrote a book in particular called The Mandibles. Uh, It was out about four years ago. And she very kindly started the book with a quote from me, from my book, Currency Wars. Um, And that was kind of a a cue or catalyst for her to to go ahead and and write what she wrote. But it's it's about the near future. And I always find that interesting. And to me, science fiction is, you know, writing about the 23rd century or whatever. Um, and fiction is what's going on today. But there is this genre of near future, meaning, you know, 10, 15 years ahead, not 100 years ahead, a, a little bit in the future so that you can tell a story, but not so far that you can't relate to it. Right. And in, in her not distant future of the 2030s, um, uh, you know, people still have jobs, but, uh, you know, the police only work for bribes, you know, so if they're in your neighborhood, there's a crime being committed, they won't help or do anything unless somehow you pay them, you know, they, so they, they look out for you. Um, by the way, that's the way fire departments were in, in, uh, in the 1750s in Philadelphia, you, you subscribed and they put a plaque on your building and if your building was on fire and they came, if they saw the plaque, they would put out the fire. But if you didn't have one, they wouldn't. So, um, so it's kind of the same thing. You'd go shopping and the supermarket shelves are pretty much stripped bare, which was, you know, I saw that at Costco a year ago trying to buy paper. Yeah, that was in um, this country not long ago. Not long ago, right. But um, 
but you might buy stuff you didn't need simply because it could be good for barter at some other opportunity. So you might buy a bag of nuts and bolts. You don't need them, but you might run into somebody who's got some food, but they need nuts and bolts and they'll do, they'll do a barter trade with you. So that was kind of the mentality. Uh, clean water was not available maybe one day a week, but everyone would make it shower day, you know? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, and, and not, so it's not as if life was unrecognizable where people were living in spaceships or using phasers or, you know, teletransporting. I'm sorry. Do you, do you reckon that has something to do with the firearm sales and the ammunition shortage going on right now? Uh, well, I, you know, the one thing I just shake my head. So, so with the Biden administration in place, you know, gun control is one of their highest priorities. Okay, you would think COVID relief or something, but, but gun control is one of the highest priorities. They put this guy as uh, head of the, I don't know if he's confirmed yet, but he's nominated for uh, alcohol, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Uh, you know, the ATF, or as Joe Biden would say, uh, the AFT. Um, and, uh, and he's he's like a, a radical. I mean, he's he's not like a you know we need a little sensible gun guy. He's just he would get rid of all of them, um, and they haven't actually done that much. There was a couple of executive orders, uh, not clear. They're constitutional. I'm sure they'll be contested. There hasn't been any big legislation, but this has been going on a long time. And and what right. amazes me, just as an observer, every time the gun control advocates you know step out, which they are now, gun sales double and double again i talked to a gun dealer you know licensed you know by the book gun dealer does the background checks no funny business uh he said jim last april 2020 uh, he said my sales doubled in the month yeah he said we were amazed and how oh, wow that was good for us and he said but the, but the problem was they doubled again yeah and again is it it kept going yeah it's impossible uh, to keep it in the pipeline Right. So now you go to, um, we're still not far from where I live. Uh, it's it's kind of like a Cabela's or a L.L. Bean. It, it's it's not a chain. It's just one name. But it's if you saw it from the outside, you went in, it, it would remind you of a big L.L. Bean Cabela's type of place. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a huge gun department uh, and the shelves are stripped bare. It looks like the toilet paper aisle at Costco. Um, we're, here we're in, uh, I'm in New Hampshire, Sig Sauer is a major uh, gun manufacturer, rifle manufacturer. And their headquarters is here. It's just, it's right down the street. Well, they have a big display case, you know, six yeah. strip bear, stripped bear. You can't get anything. You know uh, what? That's an interesting thing. I didn't know that. I, I, I am a, I'm actually a firearms instructor. Uh-huh. I don't know if you knew that, but I carry a six hour on a regular basis, almost every day, pretty much. Well, every day. well hang on to it. because You can't get a replacement. Uh, good, good luck getting a replacement. Yeah. I didn't know uh, that the factory was so close to your house. It gives me a, an excuse to come out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I don't. It, it, it's, I think it's their head office. I don't know that's the manufacturing yeah. set, but their their head office. Oh, yeah. But the point is, they're like a local brand, and you can't get them. Um, uh, ammunition strip bear. Go online. You know, twenty pages of uh, brands in a certain caliber. You know, out of stock, out of stock, out of stock, out of stock. I mean on and on you you can't get it so and so i read an article it's like well gee uh, I'm, I'm you know economics 101 your first week they teach you about supply and demand i said the demand is so great why can't the supply keep up and it can't they they, they interviewed this journalist interviewed some um uh, uh bullet manufacturers some ammunition manufacturers and they said we're running three shifts i mean don't look at us we're, we're running three shifts 
uh, and, and get it out the door as fast as we can, and we can't keep up. So, uh, so my point being, okay, so you're a gun control advocate. You think guns are a problem, which, which they're not. But, um, uh, but the more you complain about it, the more America is arming itself yeah. to the teeth. Yeah. So why don't you just shut up and maybe things sure. will come down. You know what it makes me, uh, are you familiar with that show, The Mandalorian? Uh, so what's the show? Oh, Mandalorian? The Mandalorian? No. Okay. Uh, I've heard, I've it's, heard about it. That's the one where they fired. A lot of people, a lot of people know that the, it's a Star Wars thing. They fired the things Gina, he says. Gina Carano or something was that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not one of, one of the things the Mandalorian says that's the, they have like a Mandalorian is like this. It's almost like a religious group or a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like, it reminds me of the Knights Templar, but one of their sayings is, um, I'm a Mandalorian, so so weapons are part of my religion. It's almost like Americans are kind of like that. You know, if you try yeah. to take them away, Americans just go out and they're just like, no, no. Right. And and I uh, this one of the worst is this uh, Jennifer Grant, uh, Grantham, I guess. She was the governor of Michigan, and now she's the head of, uh, I think it's EPA. It, 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 I'm not sure. It's one of the big cabinet-level departments, and I say sure. EPA. It could be something else, but she, she's got one of the top cabinet level positions in the in the Biden administration, the ultra, ultra liberal progressive. And she was talking about guns on some TV show and said something like, well, well why do you need an armor piercing bullet to hunt? And I thought to myself, you don't, you need it to pierce armor. I mean, that's right. <laughs> the whole, the second amendment is not about hunting. Yeah, you, right. you can take a gun and go hunt. The second amendment is not about hunting. It's about the ability of Americans to stand up for their freedom. Um, and so they just don't get it. Yeah, very few people want to talk about that, by the way. That's one of those taboo subjects. Yeah. This this part of it will not appear on YouTube, <laughs> but it will appear um, in the unedited version. Yeah, I, I keep uh yeah, but I keep wondering when I'm gonna get banned for Twitter. It hasn't happened yet, but I, I yeah, keep trying. Well, <laughs> they need you, they need a foil. They yeah, need a foil, Jim. Well, I spent I do spend a disproportionate amount of time uh because I have some engineering training, I spent a disproportionate amount of time reverse engineering big tech algorithms so that I can participate in a way that doesn't sort of put a target on your back. So right. uh, if you know what they're banning, you know, just, uh, you know, change your word here and there or uh, right. don't, don't use the that, Twitter. That handle. list, Jim, you should consider selling that information. I know uh, a lot of people would probably pay <laughs> It's definitely it's definitely a secret. You can't can't give it away. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Let's do uh, let's do a right lightning round on the book. I'm going to ask okay. you a question. Respond in like one minute, one minute thirty seconds. Ready? Okay. Right. okay. Yeah. First chapter. You call the virus a viral attack. Why'd you call it that? It came from the laboratory in Wuhan. Um, that's very clear. And it's funny when I wrote that part of the book in the last May, I had. I just got absorbed and I was, I read like over a hundred peer reviewed academic uh, studies. I was not reading, I might've read headlines, but I wasn't relying on them. And I was, certainly wasn't into the, uh, the weeds with the, uh, you know, conspiracy theories on the web and all this stuff. I was using published academic research, peer reviewed research. And it was clear then that it came from the lab. And I said it, and, you know, I, I presented both sides. So here's the wet market evidence. Here's the lab evidence. But using various methods, it looks very much like it came from the lab. I felt like it was going out on a limb a little bit at the time, but I felt that it was, I was comfortable doing it. I thought the evidence backed me up. Since then, 
the evidence has been overwhelming that yes, it did come from the lab. So I feel uh, vindicated. I'm also glad that I was able to say that to the readers and it has, in fact, the evidence has borne that out. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of people who don't believe that still. So by the book, look at did, when Jim writes a book, here's the thing about why he's such a popular author is he digs so hard into the evidence that you, it's just, it's pretty much irrefutable. So if you don't believe it by the book, read, read all the research that he's done, you'll, you'll get to it. Um, number two, masks, ridiculous or effective? Uh, more on the ridiculous side, um, the, uh, you know, during the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918-1919, public health officials and doctors did everything they could. They actually knew nothing. Now, it's easier to say that in hindsight. They were, they were moving heaven and earth at Johns Hopkins and the Rockefeller um, Institute at the time and, and a few other centers. Um, and they did the best they could, and they warned people about certain things, but they actually didn't know what it was. It wasn't, it actually wasn't until the 1930s that they knew it was a virus. They thought it was a bacteria at the time. And uh, it was with the invention of the electron microscope when they could first actually see a virus. Uh, and then some uh, experiments involving sheep where it, it was pretty conclusive, that's what it caused it. But they didn't even know what it was. Um, so, so, so that's an interesting point, by the way. Electron microscope, which means it's a nanoparticle. Meaning correct, correct. So it's smaller. They put your put your mask under a microscope and look at the weave, and you can actually see through it. Well, if the virus is smaller than that, which it is, and if you need an electron microscope to see the virus, which you do, then the virus can go right through the mask. Common sense. And, 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 and people don't wear them correctly right. anyway. So it, it's a low cost kind of thing, but it's mostly virtue signaling and doesn't do any good. Virtue signaling, yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. Okay, next. A lot of people are not going to like that, by the way. That's okay. Whatever, you know. I just I, <laughs> well, it's not. It's not just opinion, though. I mean, I just I just gave you some science involving the size of the particle and the size of the weave. Buy the book, read it. Okay, next one. Vaccine, miracle cure, or global experiment on humanity, or something more sinister. Well, I'll stop short of the sinister side, but it is definitely an experiment. First of all, I don't consider it a vaccine. Uh, they call it that. It's, I know. I understand. Here, get your vaccine. It's not a vaccine. It's an experimental gene modification therapy. It's not approved by the FDA, by the way. They're, it's legal, but they're operating on a waiver from the approval, but they haven't actually been approved by the FDA. Not, not many people know that. And again, here's one. Go read what the pharmaceutical companies themselves said about their own products. Again, you don't need you don't need QAnon. You don't need the web. Just go read what Glasco and, and AstraZeneca and uh, Moderna and others said about their own treatments. Yep. So a classic vaccine kind of works like this. How, would it, how did Edward Jenner figure out a vaccine for smallpox? So what he did, he noticed just empirically that milkmaids did not get smallpox. So he said, huh, everyone else is getting it. What's up with that? Well, it turns out because they're milkmaids, they were getting cowpox, which is not that bad. But the cowpox immunized them against smallpox. So he took the cowpox virus and um, injected it and actually did it with a, with a child without permission, a little ethical issue there, but, but then he exposed the kids to smallpox and he didn't get it. So there's your vaccine. So classical vaccines are either an attenuated form of the virus you're trying to protect against, or they're a closely related virus that will produce the right antibodies. Right. Either case, it does immunize you and it goes away, meaning the thing that you took in uh, to create the antibodies disappears from your body 
the antibody response remains and you're immunized. That's the vaccine. That is not what these things are. These are, these, are. these are mRNA. RNA, this is genetic engineering. RNA is sort of a half a strip of DNA, if you want to think of it that way. They're uh, bioengineered. Uh, it's uh, you know, modified RNA. They inject it into you. And the way it works is that RNA goes into your cell, hijacks the cell mechanism, right. orders the cell to, to complete the strand, uh, and then that is actually, that is not uh, uh, an antibody. That's a uh, spike protein. Right. It's like you, a program running in your, in the human body that's telling it to do something it wouldn't normally do. Correct. So you've actually bioengineered a spike protein in your own body, which then right. does produce uh, a, um, an antibody response. But a couple, a couple of differences. Number one, that spike protein is, pro that, I mean, that spike protein doesn't go away. That, that RNA re keeps replicating. So it doesn't. Right. Now, sorry, here's I gotta dive in here for a second because we need to move to the next question. But here's my big concern with that. I was watching this uh, interview with a viral warfare expert. In fact, I got the I got the link from you, I think. Um, okay. But uh, she's basically saying that that spike protein, because we know its properties, can then be used with a part two bioweapon later. Now, I'm not saying that's what they're doing. Right. But she's saying it was a big concern because it's possible now. Well, first of all, the whole list of concerns. Number one, um, none of these things were tested long enough to get a good handle on on side effects. Now, you know, so far so good, but uh, we don't know what's going to happen a year from now, two years from now, or five years from now in terms of the long term side effects. Number one, number two, um, this antibody response that it generates, which apparently is somewhat effective against the COVID virus, may be so powerful that it diminishes your antibody response against a whole bunch of other diseases. So how do we know we're not setting ourselves up for other, um, uh, I'll say plagues or epidemics of things sure. that we're, we're kind of pretty well protected against today, but we're destroying the protection by uh, having an overwhelming response to this one particular uh, synthetically created spike protein. I love all these progressives. They're like, they're in the supermarket reading the labels because they don't want any GMO food. Uh, but, but they're taking experimental uh, genetic modification uh, injections into their arms, but they don't which, want to carry. Which, which, by the way, Big Pharma cannot be sued for. Important to know. Well, well, that's, yeah, so so yeah. it's not approved by the FDA. It's operating on a waiver. They're immune from uh, liability. We don't know about side effects. We might be doing more harm than good. Uh, if you want to take it, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not trying to shut down vaccinations. So go for it. But um, I don't think we're really getting informed consent. I don't think people understand that this is not right. a traditional vaccine. Right. And I don't think they understand that it, it is genetic modification on an experimental basis. Yeah, and, and censoring immaterial uh, by big tech, censoring material that maybe disagrees with, with what's being put out on official channels is, is the opposite of informed consent. Yeah, and by the way, every, everything I just said is, first of all, backed up by... Um, scientific papers. It's in the pharmaceutical company's own studies. It's not coming out of left field. Yep. And a lot of the things I pose in the form of a question, I don't know the answer, but neither do they. Um, you would think there would be a good healthy debate. Why, why would you shut down the debate over it though? That's what I question. What's like, why would you do that? Because, well, I'll tell you why, because this is just another form of government control. Yep. Control guns, control vaccines, control your body, control what you say. And even when people get around it or they find a platform, um, it's what about all the tens of thousands or millions of people 
who are so intimidated they keep their mouth shut. See, that's the real effect. It's yeah. not that you, it's not that you shut down every dissenter, yeah. but you shut you shut down a million doubters who just say, you know what, life's too short. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. That's what that's what they want. Yeah. Okay. So next item in the uh, in the lighting round, we're almost done with that. Why are infection? Excuse me. Why are infection rates in Africa so low? Hydroxychloroquine. That they they walk around with it in their pockets the way we walk around with aspirin, uh, and yeah, they they take it from the. By library. they you mean Africans people? Who uh, Africans, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when it started. I was you know obviously wrote the book. I was staring at the Johns Hopkins dashboard like three hours a day, but but I was looking at trends. I was looking at hotspots. I was looking at exponential functions. I was tracking the thing and just trying to understand it and. Uh, um, and the conventional wisdom was, wow, it's out of control in Italy. It's out of control in Spain. It's coming to the United States. Boy, just wait till it gets to Africa. They're all going to die as if the Africans were, you know, didn't have the public health uh, facilities and the administration and right. the sophistication. And that did not happen. Turns out they didn't die. Turns out, well, they didn't die. They didn't even get it that, that much. Now, yes, some cases, of course, there are some cases. But their uh, caseloads relative to population the fatalities are far, far lower than in the United States and, and Europe. And so then that's the question, why? And the answer is they're walking around with hydroxychloroquine in their pockets. Interesting. And here, and here by the way, I, I guarantee you, I, I, I haven't been banned from Twitter, but every now and then I get, I, I notice like I'll put out something and get 800 you know, retweets and 10,000, know, a million impressions or whatever. And every now and then I put out something that gets no retweets. And I'm like, I I'm like, well, it wasn't a bad piece. That they're just blocking it. And I know. Shadow banned. Yeah. If you if you want to get blocked, if you want to get shadow banned, just use the word hydroxychloroquine. They won't. See, I'm serious. They won't necessarily shut down your account, but that that tweet's not going anywhere. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, next, last question in the lightning round. What happened to the flu? Like, I saw a chart of all the years of all the flu cases, and like last year. Well, yeah, I'm sure almost zero. The short answer is that the annual fatalities from the flu in the United States, you know, they vary low end 20,000, high end, maybe 80,000 uh, a year. But um, there are what they call comorbidities, meaning people die of the flu generally tend to be older, obese, diabetes, asthma, you know, et cetera. Well, those were the same people who were dying of COVID. So a lot of people who died of COVID might have died of the flu, except they died of COVID. Um, it's tragic either way, but uh, it's almost as if COVID was front-running the flu and, and wiped out a vulnerable part of the population that might otherwise have died of the flu. So the number of flu cases was quite small. Interesting, okay. Or I, should, I should say, well, if flu fatalities, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so Jim, our, our podcast conversations over the years have, uh, we pretty traditionally covered you know, certain topics. We talk about economics, we talk about geopolitics, we talk a lot about like security stuff, national security, combat arms type technologies, things like that. Because I'm I'm prior military. I know you've you 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 have some like experience working with the intelligence community. So it's kind of like a, a meshing sort of area for us. Last two things. Number one, National Guard troops are still in Washington, DC. Now this is yeah, this is, this is okay. Just my opinion. That's ridiculous. So I have my own suspicions as to why they're still there. But what is your thoughts on that? Well, I would just ask the question: Why were National Guard troops not called 
in Portland, Minneapolis, uh, LA, San Francisco, Baltimore, New York, et cetera, when the cities were burning. Um, they were late in the game in a couple of cases, but not when they were needed, not in most places. So why were National Guard troops not called when cities were burning, but they were called after, after um, a riot in uh, the Capitol. And that, that was, you know, unfortunate. No one's justifying that, but uh, it, it wasn't that many people when it was over in a day, but suddenly since then, the Capitol has been surrounded by National Guard troops and seven foot or 10 foot fences and barbed wire and checkpoints, military checkpoints, et cetera. Um, two reasons. Number one, Nancy Pelosi wants to convey the impression that uh, Republicans or Trump supporters in particular are, are insurrectionists and you have to protect the government against that. Uh, and two, it, there's an intimidation factor. Uh, so um, it's, it, it's ridiculous. It's too bad for the troops. I'm sure they have better things to do. Uh, there's no reason for it, but it's, you know, if uh, it's just part of the fear and intimidation that the American people are being subject to. Sure. Okay, so I have a quick comment about that. National Guard, because I'm paramilitary, so National Guard units are supposed to be um, basically the, the regulated, the modern version of the regulated militias of the states. They typically fall under the command of the governor of the state. Um, and they're not usually part of the federal military apparatus, so to speak, except under emergencies, right? Right. Um, and back in the day, you know, when the country first started, we had these, you know, citizens, every citizen was in the militia. I mean, basically, if you ask the founders who the militia, they would say the people, all of the people, right. like every single person in America, right? Um and, and so that's sort of become the thing now. And, and I would suggest that maybe what they're trying to do is, is send a message that those, those are not the state's troops. They belong to the federal government in a way. Maybe they're trying to teach the troops that, number one, and maybe they're trying to teach the people that, number two. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. And uh, also, as far as militias are concerned, just go to, uh, go to Switzerland. There's not, there's not a person in Switzerland who doesn't have an automatic weapon under his bed. Yeah, absolutely. The whole, the whole country is armed to the teeth. That's why no one messes with them. Exactly. And hasn't for hundreds of years. Nobody's uh, been last time they were invaded was about 500 years ago. And the French yeah. came in, the Swiss kicked their butts, and, and they, they've never been invaded since. Everyone's like, oh, they're neutral. They love peace, love, and understanding. It's like, no, they're armed to the teeth. They're armed to the teeth. It's the last place I would want to invade on the planet. Are you kidding me? Right. Okay. So, um, last item. Uh, this is my opinion. The new Secretary of State is a disaster. I watched that first um, that first interaction between his delegation and the Chinese delegation. I was completely embarrassed. I was like, "Are you kidding me right now?" So apparently, he has warned China to not attack Taiwan. Uh, personally, I would have a hard time taking any threat that guy makes very seriously, and I doubt China is very afraid of him. Um, how do you think that extends to basically how the Chinese view the U U.S. and like what's coming down the pipe as far as Taiwan, et cetera? Yeah, well, it's not just China. I mean, uh, it's China and Russia and Iran and, and, and yeah, throw in North Korea. All four of them are going to test the United States in different ways. So Iran is, you know, bombing um, uh, Israeli vessels and uh, supporting, you know, rocket attacks on Riyadh and, um, 
you know, resume or accelerate the enrichment of uranium, at least until the other day when Israel blew up their, the, like the power supply on their plant. Um, uh, North Korea is fire, uh, testing uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles again. They haven't done the, the longer range missile, but they seem to be tiptoeing up to that. China's uh, encroaching on India through the Himalayas and uh, encroaching in the Philippines and the South China Sea and threatening Taiwan. Um, and Russia is uh, poised to um, invade uh, uh, eastern Ukraine uh, and perhaps build a land bridge to Crimea. Uh, now, who knows if any one of those four things get worse, although they may very well, but they're all testing Biden. Now, Biden is, is not there. He's, he's suffering some form of uh, dementia, um, not unusual for someone his age. To, he's had brain surgery twice. Um, in in the 70s when the techniques were far more intrusive and left more lasting damage than they do today. Um, and he's um, he's pushing 80. So uh, so you have sort of nobody home in the Oval Office. Uh, and you do have the people you mentioned, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, uh, and others running national security apparatus. Now, here's my view of them. Uh, they're not hard shell ideologues. Susan Rice's Michelle Obama is, and a lot of cabinet officers are, but not Blinken and, um, and Sullivan. But what they are, are, I call them creatures of process. And what I mean by that is you have substance and process. Now, you need an orderly process to achieve substance. But the European method, as, a, as exemplified here by John Curry, and I would say Blinken and, and um, Sullivan and others, is... You know, as long as there's an interagency meeting, as long as the memo gets passed around, as long as all the equities, that's a that's Washington uh, buzzword for, you know, everyone has an interest in this. Do we talk to everybody? Do we do the meetings the right way? Was it memorialized in the right way? As long as the process is fine, they actually don't care what's happening. We saw this in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. We had to distinguish between first impeachment, second impeachment. Uh, but the first impeachment, you saw these people testify against the president. It was... Uh, uh, I think Fiona Hill, George Kent, uh, Lieutenant, uh, what's his name, uh, Vindman, uh, you know, did call me a lieutenant. Uh, you know, mo most, most guys who are really um, impressive military officers don't go around, you know, shouting their credentials, but the, the guys who are a little more insecure probably do, uh, Vindman. But I listened to all the testimony. I watched it. And, and so the, here are the facts. Obama sent Ukraine blankets and MREs, meals ready to eat, basically spam in a can. Trump sent them weapons, you know, armor piercing, you know, uh, grenade launchers, missiles and so forth. That's, those are the facts. So why are you getting impeached for not helping Ukraine? Well, the answer is, and this is what they testified. Well, he didn't follow the process. He didn't call the ambassador. He didn't have an interagency meeting. He didn't call me, meaning whoever it was, Fiona Hill or George Cannon, whoever it was, the guy with the bow tie. Um, and, but then like someone like, uh, you know, Devin Nunes or Jim Jordan said, but yeah, but he, he sent them weapons that Trump never, or that Obama never did. He actually sent them weapons. Like, yeah, but he didn't do it the right way. So, um, and John Curry during the whole, uh, negotiation, the joint comprehensive plan of action, JCPOA, which is the Iranian deal. What did he do? He flew to Vienna. He flew to Geneva. He stayed in a nice hotel. He went to Berlin. He went to a con. He did all the right things, but the substance of that deal was horrible, horrible. Right, right. So 
So what I see is it's not so much that they're left-wing progressive ideologues and they're, they got some secret agenda. I don't think that. I do think that they're process people, but process people get run over by reality. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I don't think they're, they're like uh, ideologues by any means. I just don't think that they're good. They're, they're, they're not a good face for, okay, so there's that saying that I'm sure you're very well familiar with. It's ancient, right? Um, CVs pachem parabellum. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and I don't think that's happening right now. I, I think China's looking at the United States. Like if China wanted to go kinetic on Taiwan, if it were me. So as soon as I started watching the moves being made by the new administration, I was thinking to myself, China, ta- Taiwan's going to hit, or I'm sorry, China's going to hit Taiwan, kinetic, before this administration is, is out its first term. And now I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than than. Uh, I, yeah, it, it, it's hard to say, but I think, well, let me just put it this way. The probability of that has gone way up. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, pro- and and they'll probably you know uh, you know the geography as well as I do. There are those Kimoi, Matsu, uh, uh, Parasol Islands. There are all these little island groups that are nominally or legally part of Taiwan, um, but China may just swarm one or more of them. Some of them are not much more than rocks, but the, but the symbolism won't be lost in anyone. And then. That's is the US going to do anything? No, that's a good point. It's like it's it's the it's it's kind of uh, um, putting it out there like it like a bully in the playground is going to going to take some territory or whatever, do something that's that's inappropriate, and then watch to see what the response is. What are you going to do? Right, exactly. Right? And if you do nothing, they it tells them something. Right, and by the way, the U, the U, if the U is Joe Biden, there's nobody home. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So that about wraps up our time. I, I appreciate the conversation as always, Jim. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to doing it again on the, on the new podcast in the future. Thank you, Alex. I look forward to the next one. Uh, last thing. I understand you've got a new book in the works. Do you want to say anything about that? Uh, not much. I, I like when, when, when we send it off to the printers and I know it's coming back, I'll start banging the drum. Uh, but um, it's still it's still kind of early in the process. Uh, it's called The Ravens. I'm going to co-author it with uh, Robert Kiyosaki, but we'll have more to say about it later this year when it uh, goes through the bookstores. Okay, so all you Jim Rickards fans, that's the little tidbit. All right, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Alex.